Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Saturday, May 21st, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I'm afraid that many of our regular Identity Christian listeners will probably think that this program is rather superfluous, but I feel that it must be said as part of this Protocols of Satan series, which this Jews in Europe series I see as a part of. This is the Jews in Europe, the Mask mask of Freemasonry, Part 3. To begin this evening's program, I want to repeat a paragraph which we had presented in our last segment of this series. From pages 333 to 335, of the Freemasons Manual, written by one Jeremiah Howe, and published in 1881. We are doing this first to buttress the claims of our source volume for this series, which is the Plot Against the Church, which was supposedly written by one Maurice Pinier, which was really the pseudonym of a group of Catholic clerics. The plot against the Church asserts that Freemasonry is a product of world Jewry and has been used as a vehicle to subvert Western civilization and also to reiterate my assertions concerning any connections alleged between the more ancient Knights Templar and Freemasonry. Here, Jeremiah Howe is writing in reference to the so-called Royal Exalted Religious and Military Order of Masonic Knights Templar, which is evidently an order and a degree within Freemasonry. And he says, there is much difference of opinion as to the origin of this degree of the Masonic institution. And without attempting to show that the form of conferring the degree is identical with that of the gallant and devoted soldier monks of the Crusades. It cannot be controverted that their institution possessed some features of similarity to Freemasonry. The connection between the Knights Templar and the Masonic Institution has been repeatedly asserted by the friends and enemies of both. Brother Lowry says, We know the Knights Templar not only possessed the mysteries, but performed the ceremonies, and inculcated the duties of Freemasons. And he attributes the dissolution of the order to the discovery of their being Freemasons, and assembling in secret to practice the rites of the order. He endeavors to show that they were initiated into the order by the Druzes a Syrian fraternity which existed at that date and indeed now continues, and of course it still continues. In the French manuscript ritual of about 1780, in the degree of black and white eagle, the 30th degree, the transmission of Freemasonry by the Templars is most positively asserted. The history of the Templars and their persecution is minutely described in the closing address, and the Grand Commander adds, This is, my illustrious brother, 
How and by whom masonry is derived, and it has been transmitted to us. You are now a Knight Templar, and on a level with them. Well, that's a poignant claim. We are going to reassert that it is our opinion that the whole story about Freemasonry getting into Europe through the Knights Templar is an absolute fabrication. It is a cover story shielding the Jews from exposure as the real force behind Freemasonry. If it were true, it would suppose that Freemasonry had a more noble origin than the medieval scholars, Jewish interlopers, and outright frauds who were promoting the use of the Kabbalah and the formation of secret societies around that. But even the sect of the Druze is founded upon Judaism, and modern Druze today even sit in the Israeli parliament in Palestine. Furthermore, the Knights Templar allegedly became wealthy through a mixed system of donations and usury, a vocation rather exclusive to the Jews in 13th century France. There may have been similarities between the Templars and the Masons only because they had the same influences. Furthermore, the Kabbalah is not a part of Druze literature, but a product of Jewish literature created in medieval Europe and it is the basis for Freemasonry as well. Jeremiah Howe was an apologist for Masonry. He was also an apologist for the Templars. And he seems to have wanted to illustrate similarities between the two so as to posit the possibility of a connection. But he also seems to have been a realist and goes on to state on page 326 of his book that it has been stated by several authors, but has never been satisfactorily proved that the Templars were a branch of the Masonic institution and secretly opposed to the papacy. But the whole history of the order is opposed to such an idea, and it was rather the great wealth and social influence exerted by this formidable body that excited the cupidity of King Philip and the jealousy of Bertrand Gott, Clement V, the Pope, than any actual infidelity to the Church itself on the part of the Templars. It is true that various secret associations existed from the earliest ages of the Roman Church. Having such objects... But it is not to be believed that a body of men who deliberately sacrificed their lives and fortunes to the cause of the Crusades and to the dissemination of papal doctrines could in private combat the principles which they publicly professed. But there can be no doubt that for purposes of security they had a code of secret signs and passwords analogous to, although not identical with, those of Freemasonry. That they were totally different from those of the present day may be safely concluded. In fact, many chivalric institutions existed with a closed system of initiation, and hence they were occasionally taken for Masonic sodalities. 
But the whole conduct of the Knights refutes the charge of any attempt to subvert either Christianity or the Church. In fact, until the attack made upon the Templars by King Philip, the orders of chivalry had always been considered by the Church of Rome as her strongest bulwarks. That's Jeremiah Howe's assessment of the truth of the connections between the Templars and the Masons, and he denied them. It is quite clear that modern Freemasonry is a cult founded to assist the Jews in the overthrow of Christendom, while the Knights Templar were indeed an organization which had, at least for a time in the Middle East, defended Christendom, and at any rate had an agenda quite different from that of modern Freemasonry. The later Freemasons may have adopted De Molay as a mascot of their own, but that does not make it a fact that he was a Freemason. The connections between the two are only wishful thinking on the part of those who would obscure the true Jewish origins of modern Freemasonry. But at this point in his book, Jeremiah Howe, goes on to discuss the wonderful buildings that the Knights Templar were said to have had constructed, loosely linking them to a Masonic tradition in that fashion. It seems to be one of the odd assertions of the Freemasons that all building skills came down from Egypt and through ancient Israel and then to Europe through the Jews, an absurd claim propagated by the Jews themselves. For this we will make a short citation from another book, The History of Freemasonry and Masonic Digest, by a man named J.W.S. Mitchell. The book was published by the man himself. It was published by the author in Marietta, Georgia, in 1859, and if you want to know how long we've had Jew lovers in the South, this will let you know. He says, the remnant of the Jews, whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive into Babylon, included very many of those noble-hearted Giblamites, who descended from the builders of Solomon's temple, and Masonic tradition informs us that they continued to hold secretly their lodge meetings, and in this way taught their children the secrets of Freemasonry and the principles of the revealed religion of their fathers. For it will be remembered that, previous to the fall of Jerusalem, the power and authority to transcribe the law was confined to the scribes. And hence, but a small portion of the people were in possession of a copy, every copy found being destroyed by the infidel invader. The captive Jews, therefore, could only perpetuate their religion by teaching it to their children from memory, as they did masonry. All the captive masons were compelled for the space of fifty-two years, to devote their time, labor, and skill in finishing and ornamenting the buildings which the king of Babylon and his predecessor had commenced, as also the erection of new ones. 
In this way, the Chaldean Masons, who wrought with the captive Jews, perfected themselves in architecture. For the specimens of their joint labor made Babylon the fourth of the seven wonders of art and the boasted mistress of the world. And wow, is that a crock? Then on page 110, Mitchell, the Freemason, writes, Thus labored and toiled the true descendants of the twelve tribes of Israel. Mind you, he's talking about the Babylonian captivity when nine and a half tribes were never present nor heard from. Born down with oppression and slavery and denied the privilege dear to the heart of every Jew of worshipping the God of their fathers. Now, all of this from Mr. Mitchell is absolutely contrary to both secular and scriptural records of ancient Babylon and of the Judahite captivity, where the Bible informs us that there was only a small portion of two tribes in Babylon. It can be thoroughly refuted as well with the study of the book of Daniel. This whole thing is a fairy tale. And with this, with all certainty, Freemasonry is therefore an anti-Christian religion founded on Jewish fables and Jewish lies concerning the Old Testament as well as the Jewish Kabbalah. And again, we are going to quote Richard Carlyle in his own manual of Freemasonry, published even earlier than Mr. Mitchell's in 1833. And he said on page 86, In the degrees of Masonry, we begin with the entered apprentice, which signifies a beginning to learn. Then comes the fellow craft, which signifies something learned and applied, under the direction of a master. The degree of master implies a capability to teach or to direct instruction. The royal arch completes the philosophic character, and is the acme of the masonry of the present Grand Lodge, and all that the Templar degrees of the Christian orders can add is a new form of the allegory. The Grand Lodge masonry of the present day is wholly Jewish. But a full understanding of the subject presents the three orders of Judaism at the top, Christianity, kind of in the middle, and masonry as one and the same allegorical scheme for human improvement. Out. Bible, out the window. New Testament, out the window. Old Testament, out the window. It must be borne in mind, as we see that Christianity was tolerated at the lower levels of Freemasonry, the Freemasons would not be able to attract their willing dupes if they had openly rejected Christianity before the prospective initiates. The society at that time was wholly Christian. Even if it was marginally Christian, it was Christian. And the Jews needed those Christians in order to complete their subversion of Western society. 
and neither is Carlyle truly enlightened, since his entire description of Freemasonry and of the New Testament itself is given through the lens of Jewish fables concerning both the Old and the New Testaments. Both Carlyle and Mitchell saw the Old Testament not as the history of a real, tangible people, but as religious allegory concerning the Jews. Carlyle also explicitly saw the New Testament as little more than a universalist philosophy of life. But the proofs concerning the connection of Freemasonry to the Jews is in the pudding. If the Freemasons promote agendas amenable to the Jews, then they are doing the anti-Christian work of the Jews. Here we shall commence with our presentation of part two of the book, The Plot Against the Church, which is attributed to Maurice Pinier, where we had left off with chapter six. And this short this last short chapter of part two, chapter six, is the end of our narrative concerning masonry. But we will present but one chapter from part three, where the Catholic clerics discuss the Jews and the Old Testament themselves. And we will see the reasons for that as this unfolds. This is chapter six, and it's subtitled, Freemasonry Favors and Spreads Communism, which is a Jewish creation. Among the abundant documentation, which his most reverend, the Cardinal Caro, quotes, to show that Jews and communists spread communism, we select the following, and this citing Caro's book, The Secret of Freemasonry, Cardinal Caro being the Archbishop of Santiago, Chile. According to the Russian Tribune, Caro says, which appears in Munich in the Russian language. Evidently, it was a periodical. Jewry, in its fight, maintains, according to various plans, the following combat organizations, all for the purpose of preparing the triumph of the Third Internationale, the Golden Internationale, the Red Internationale, and the Black International or Combat Association of Jewry. And here Caro claims to be quoting what's really a Jewish publication in Munich called the Russian Tribune. And in part one of our presentation, in chapter three of this book, The Plot Against the Church, which was titled The Jewish Predominance in the Lodges and presented here in the first part of the series. We saw that the organization of Freemasonry was divided into five major sections and we saw this from a publication on the secret societies which was made in France in the early 1920s and the citation is there. I just don't have it in my head. The first three of these sections of Freemasonry were the Golden, the Red, and the Black 
internationals. The Golden International consisted of the bankers and plutocrats. The Red International consisted of the members of the major socialist political parties in Belgium, Vienna, Moscow, and elsewhere, and all of the political syndicates in Europe that had not yet been incorporated into Bolshevism. Bolshevism. The Black International was called the Combat Organization of Jewry. It consisted of associations such as the World Organization of Zionists, the Israelite World League, the Jewish Order of the Sons of Moses, and many other Jewish societies dispersed throughout Europe and the Americas. Of course, today, these would be replaced by more modern-sounding organizations, such as the ADL, APAC, SPLC, NAACP, yeah, that's a Jewish organization, the JIDF, the World Jewish Councils, the European Jewish Parliament, and many others. Below these upper levels are the Blue International or International Freemasonry, which unites all of the non-Jewish Masonic Lodges, and also the Freemasonic Order of B'nai B'rith, which accepts only Jews and serves as a link to all the other internationals. Morgenthau, Louis Brandeis, Felix Warburg, Louis Marshall, one of the first directors of the Jewish organization, the NAACP, and Jacob Schiff, were all among its early 20th century luminaries. Our source continues quoting from the Russian Tribune in Munich. A very similar work is performed by Russian Jewry. We, the emigrant Russians, have seen with our own eyes the enormous number of Jews who play a role in the ranks of the instigators of revolution. If we pass over the work of preparation of this revolution and the events of 1905, we will at once see what the Vienna Jewish newspaper, Der Hammer, wrote on the occasion of the Bayless affair, an affair of ritual murder in Kiev. The judgment in favor of Bayliss through the jury amounted to his exoneration, but the character of the ritual murder was proven. And there is a book, which I will link to this podcast, titled Jewish Ritual Murder, A Historical Investigation by Dr. Helmut Schramm, which is available on the Internet. In another work, Ritual Murder in Kiev, attributed to the same author. We have the following synopsis of the Bylus affair, named for the Jew, Menahem Mendel Bylus, the accused murderer of the young Andrei Yustchinsky. Here's the opening synopsis. On March 20th, 1911, the body of a boy was found on the border of the urban area of Kiev in a clay pit. It was found in a half-sitting position. The hands were tied together upon the back with a cord. The body was dressed merely with a shirt, underpants, and a single stocking. Behind the head, in a depression in the earthen wall, which according to the record of the then Kiev attorney and high school teacher, Gregor Schwartz Bostinich, 
was inscribed with mystical signs were found five rolled-together school exercise books which bore the name Property of the Student of the Four Class, Andrei Yustchinsky, Sophia School. Because of this, the identification was made very quickly. It turned out to be the 13-year-old son of the middle-class woman, Alexander Prichadko of Kiev. Bilas's fellow Jews, having corrupted the jury, corrupted the court, the witnesses, and even the prosecutors, and the victim's own mother, Bilas beat the charge, the murder charge, in the 1913 trial, in spite of the conclusive evidence against him. Helmut Schramm relates in vivid detail the amount of press propaganda, political subterfuge, bribery, and other means undertaken by Jewry in Kiev to get Bilas exonerated. Returning to our author, who is still quoting from the Russian Tribune published in Munich, the Russian government had resolved to declare war on the Jews of Kiev. Now they must know that upon this war, the fate, not of the Jews, for the Jewish people is unconquerable, but of the Russian people depends. On this we shall comment shortly. For the Russian government, it is a question of life and death. Its victory in this affair will be the beginning of its collapse. May the Russian rulers exercise caution. We will provide proof to the whole world that one cannot meddle unpunished with the Jews, whether the latter are of Kiev or any other place. And here our author, the Roman Catholic Cardinal, cites several authorities for this quotation, Derhammer itself, and also a mention by General Necholovodov in a book, Tsar Nechovalodov, I'm sorry, in the book titled Tsar Nicholas II and the Jews, and also the French Monsignor Yoin in his book The Jewish Freemason's Danger, and also an article called The United Front, which ran in an edition of a French periodical that I won't attempt to pronounce the name of. Unfortunately, Caro, Cardinal Caro, continues by saying, Unfortunately for Russia and the entire civilized world, this threat was not without consequences. Six years later, it was turned into a fact. We will quote some figures. The first workers and soldiers' council was composed of 23 members, of whom 19 were Jews. The Council of People's Commissars of 1920 had 17 Jews among its 22 members. And among the 43 high officials of the War Commission, 34 were Jews, he says Israelites. We should not make the confusion, nor encourage it. On the Commissariat of the Interior, there were 54 Jews among the officials, in that for foreign affairs, 13 Jews and 17 members. In the financial department of the government, the percentage of Jews rose to 86%. And in the court system 
up to 95%, etc. And here we see a Roman Catholic cardinal who evidently has agreed because he hasn't disagreed, and it's his book, with the errant belief that first the Jews are the Israelites of the Old Testament, and he repeats that mistake often. And secondly, ostensibly because he holds that first belief, he also seems to think that the Jews are unconquerable, or at least he did not disagree with the people publishing the Russian Tribune in Munich. So both he and they are victims of Jewish propaganda. And for that reason, they themselves become promoters of that same propaganda. The truth is that the Jews may as well be unconquerable so long as non-Jews accept and believe Jewish lies. The true apostles of Christ resisted the Jews and never thought that they were unconquerable. The only way to overcome the Jew is explained in simple terms by the Apostle James, where he wrote in his single epistle in James 4.7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. However, here we are perusing the plot against the church, not for its Catholic theology, but for its documentation of the connections between the Jews and Freemasonry. The Catholic theology was flawed and non-scriptural from its foundations, but because the Catholic Church was an institution built on political compromise between worldly kings and early Christian bishops who were supposed to believe that Christ was king, instead of recognizing the real devils in their midst, they relegated the devil to the supernatural realm and relieved themselves of the responsibility of resistance. Returning to our source, at least that's the way I see the development of the Catholic devil doctrine. In order to believe, in order to briefly summarize this statistic, let us remark that among the 545 most principal agents of the Russian Revolution in question, 447 belong to the quote-unquote tongue-in-cheek chosen people, 68 to different nationalities, Latvians, Germans, Poles, etc. And only 30 were of Russian nationality. These figures, which are taken from Bolshevik information sources, appeared in a pamphlet under the title, Who Rules in Russia?, which was published in New York in 1920. And here he cites Monsignor Yoin, the Jewish Freemasonic danger again. And he says, we should add that. At present, there are 16 Jews among the 22 trade agents of the Soviets abroad, citing the report of the Urbe Agency from 1927, which was assertedly quoted by 
Lamelin in a book entitled The Victory of Israel. Now, while we only made a precursory search, it seems that none of these three cited publications are available in online libraries. However, there are similar studies of the leadership of the Soviets which are available. Examples are Arnold Lees's 1933 work, Bolshevism is Jewish, and Dennis Fahey's 1938 booklet, The Rulers of Russia. There was a more voluminous 1967 book by Andrei Daiki entitled Jews in Russia and in the USSR. All three of those works are available at the Christogenia Mein Kampf Project and will be linked to the notes of this podcast. Continuing with Cardinal Caro. In his book, Il Manganello Bersorio, or, I'm sorry, E. Leaspersorio, the lay writer Ernesto Rossi disputes violently with the already mentioned periodical, Civilita Catolica, from which he reproduces the following paragraph with the intention of refuting it. We see heroes of the sect, evidently meaning Freemasons, who are not able to resist the gift of two millions perpetuated in all cities throughout statues, through statues. We see the sons of these heroes who pocket large sums while despising the dominant misery. Mazzini, meaning the Italian politician Giuseppe Mazzini, who campaigned for, for the unification of Italy in the 19th century. Mazzini involved himself with the synagogue, whose fruits of love are very well known in the Campidoglio of Rome. Garibaldi, Cavour, Farini, De Pretis were modest servants of the synagogue, and so are still many of those, quote-unquote, great men to whom the goodwill of the peoples has erected and still erects memorial stones, busts, and monuments in order to glorify their love of freedom and of the fatherland. And the book cited here by Ernesto Rossi is a relatively recent title in English, The Baton and the Sprinkler, and is still available in print in Italian. Its main subject is the collusion between the Vatican and the fascists of the early 20th century, although I am not certain why he would have a problem with that, if indeed he did. The Jews promoting the Age of Liberty, back in the 18th and 19th centuries, did exactly as the Apostle Peter had described in 2 Peter 2.19, where he said, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. And we should remember that quote, because soon we will discuss Luke chapter 4 where the devil offered Christ the kingdoms of the world. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. This is precisely what has happened under the modern age of liberalism. Returning to our source, which is still citing Rossi, 
Many writers of the most different directions have asserted that the Jewish question in Italy did not represent the features of a national disorder. We do not share this opinion and limit ourselves only to recalling that those who introduced communism into our land, Modigliani, Treves, Delicetta, Musati, Momigliano, Donati, etc., were Jews, and did not the renowned Togliati, the leader for many years of the Italian Communist Party, married the Jewess Montagnana, and was not her brother Mario Montagnana in the directorship of the newspaper Le Unita in its Milan edition. It should be known in addition that likewise those who directed the communist press in Italy were Jews, Longo of Vinuovo, Alatri of Leonata of Rome, Tedeschi of Leonata of Milan, Cohen directs the Pais Serra, Levi the Lata Syndicale, and Jacchia the paper Republicia, who came here who came from there into the directing of the press of the Communist Party. And that's the end of the chapter. And here we have seen, in these last few chapters, a Roman Catholic cardinal, among many other Catholic theologians, complain incessantly of Jewish power and Jewish treachery in company with his own description of the Jewish subversion of Christian culture with the help of one of its own creatures, Freemasonry. The Catholic Cardinal upheld the position that the Jews are unconquerable. However, if he truly believed that the Church represented the people of God on earth, he should have refuted that position he should have had the position that it was the church which is unconquerable rather than the Jews. If you're a Christian, you have to believe, even if the Catholics have the wrong perception of what the church is, you have to believe that the body of Christ in this world is the only unconquerable body because it's the body of Christ. Otherwise, if you don't believe that, how could you be a Christian? How could you even be a Catholic? And with this, we are going to um, we're going to present a small part of part three, the first chapter of the plot against the church, which is titled "The Synagogue of Satan." From the first chapter of that section, which is titled "Jewish Striving for Power." And we are doing this so that we can better understand the Catholic, the errant Catholic position on the Jews. The Catholic position. Taking it for granted that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament is simply wrong. But making the admission that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament is tantamount to admitting that these wicked bastards are the children of God and the people of God, and they certainly are not 
But the admission, the consent with them, is the basis of their power in the world. Don't Christians get that? I know Daisy, Daisy Duke don't get it. I know that. White nationalists should get it, and they don't get it. They just make the admission. They just let the Jews have their way with ancient history. Part 3. The Synagogue of Satan. Chapter 1. Jewish striving for power. And right off the bat, he's dead wrong. He's right, but he's wrong for implying it to the Jews. The Hebrew people, that's better, was chosen by God as a preserver of the true religion to whose preservation it was entrusted in the midst of the idolatrous peoples until the arrival of the promised Messiah, in whom the prophecies of the Old Testament should be fulfilled. We would say that half of the prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled in the Messiah because the other half don't have to do with the Messiah. The other half have to do with his people, and those people are not Jews. And our author continues. However, even before the coming of Christ, the Jews began to distort the said prophecies by giving them a false, racial, and ambitious interpretation. And this half of the paragraph is not so good. The only thing false about the racial interpretation of Scripture is that the scripture was never intended for the race of the Jews. However, the author is dishonest in his assessment of the Old Testament, which from the very beginning had an entirely racial perspective. But the Jews are not Hebrews. He continues, The promise of a kingdom of the true God upon earth, i.e., or, for example, a spiritual kingdom of the true religion, the Jews interpreted as a material kingdom of their race, as the promise of God, of world domination to the Israelites, and an enslaving of all peoples on earth through them. As examples of these false interpretations, one can quote the following, Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18. The angel of the Lord says to Abraham, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The first problem with that is that Abraham wasn't a Jew, he was a Hebrew, and while some Jews may be part Hebrew, being a Jew is not the same as being a Hebrew. Just like being an English-speaking nigger in Youngstown, Ohio, is not the same as being an Englishman. Even if, perchance, one of your ancestors was English. Paul of Tarsus had said of this very passage, in Galatians chapter 3, and the writing, having foreseen that from faith God would deem the nations righteous, announced to Abraham beforehand, that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So those from faith are blessed along with the believing Abraham. Saying these things, 
Paul imagined that the nations which would be blessed were those very nations promised to Abraham of his seed. The nations that he was told that his seed would become. So other peoples and races were not at all a factor in the promises to Abraham. And if you insist that they were, the nations of the Adamic world are listed in Genesis chapter 10. And just a, this promise is first made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And the nations are defined in Genesis chapter 10, and they are all kindred nations descended from Noah. They were all white nations, because the flood did not cover the entire world, and the Bible is full of the proofs of that in different ways. Our source goes on to say, The Jews, lusting for power, have given these verses a materialistic interpretation and think that God has offered them as the full-blooded descendants of Abraham, that they have power over the gates of their foes, that only in them, as the Jewish race, all peoples of earth be blessed. On the other hand, the Holy Church interprets these prophecies in a spiritual sense. And in reality, if you want to look at the history of the Jews in relation to all the nations of the world, through the Jews, all the nations of the earth have been cursed. They've never been blessed. And it would take an entire program to detail the history of that. The Catholic Church has taken it for granted that the Jews are, quote-unquote, full-blooded descendants of Abraham, being not at all critical of the claims of the Jews concerning their actual origins. The church and the Jews are refuted by the New Testament, where the apostles and Christ himself all deny any common origin with the Jews. But since Christ and the apostles were clearly of Benjamin and Judah, the only solution is this to understand that the Jews who were opposed to Christ were of Esau, which is clearly demonstrable in Scripture and in history. It is not our point to give all the proofs of these things tonight. It is our point to let those listening to these podcasts on Jewry know that in Identity Christianity, we have the historic and scriptural proofs that refute the Jews and refute them soundly. We have the citations to prove our point. Our author says, This is the victory that the spiritual children of Abraham, i.e. the Christians, shall obtain through the power of Jesus Christ and the gifts of an everlasting righteousness concerning the visible and invisible foes of their salvation. And so was fulfilled according to Scripture this prophecy with the erecting of the church when all peoples of the world subjected themselves to Jesus Christ and received from him blessing and salvation. 
Basing one's theology on a false premise, one will never be able to come to a truth that is consistent with Scripture. Christians are spiritual children of Abraham? No, Christians, true Christians, are natural children of Abraham. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, in verse 16, Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, meaning those that small portion of the Israelites who were the remnant in Judea and kept the law, but also mixed race mixed with Edomites and Canaanites, something which is absolutely a proven fact in history, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, not just Judea, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing, who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, which he would become for which he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration, not thus your spirit will be, but thus your offspring will be. The faith of Abraham was what Abraham believed. The faith of Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations through his own offspring. And this became true. This is also demonstrable in history. But none of them were Jews. And the Roman Catholics are oblivious. But we will continue with our source. In Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 25, the Lord says, This day will I begin to put the dead, put the dread of thee, and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven who shall hear report of thee, and shall tremble, and be in anguish because of thee. And our Catholic writer says, This passage is also given a restricted interpretation by the Holy Church, which differs completely from the ambitious Jewish feeling which degenerated throughout history into frightful actions, which proved the practical application of this false interpretation. Also, wherever during the Middle Ages the heretical movements directed by the Jews triumphed, although these victories were locally limited and of transitory nature, they were always accompanied by crime, fear, and terror. The same occurred with the Freemasonic revolutions, such as those of 1789 in France, or that of 1931 through 1936 in Spain. And yet it is said that one must not speak of Jewish communist revolutions. In the Soviet Union, where the Hebrews, or rather, where the Jews, were successful, in introducing their totalitarian dictatorship, they have sowed fear and death in such a cruel manner that the poor enslaved Russians have now only to hear the word Jew to tremble with terror. And of course the Hebrews were not Jews, and the Jews are properly not Hebrews.
<coughs> calling the Jews Hebrews would be calling the mestizos in Southern California Spaniards. And our author continues. Another example, or how about the niggers of Haiti? How about calling them French? It would be the same thing. Another example of this kind is obtained for us through the false interpretation by the Jews of verse 16 in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, which says, And thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver unto thee. Thine eye shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto thee. While the Holy Church likewise gives this passage a limited spiritual interpretation, the Church nullifies the Scripture on one side with their spiritual interpretations, and the Jews nullify the Scripture on the other side by applying it to themselves. And that would be like taking the Magna Carta and giving it over to the niggers of Cleveland. What part do they have with the Magna Carta just because they speak English? While the Holy Church likewise gives this passage a li well, just because they try to kind of speak English, I'm sorry, they really don't speak English. While the Holy Church likewise gives this passage a limited spiritual interpretation, the Jews understand it in the sense that God has provided them with the right to consume all peoples of earth and to gain power over their riches. We already saw in the fourth chapter of this work what the rabbi Baruch Levi wrote to his pupil, the young Jew Karl Marx, as the later founder of what was badly described as scientific socialism where he quoted apparent theological principles to justify the right of the Jews to appropriate to themselves the riches of all peoples on earth through proletariat, communist movements which are controlled by Jewry. And yes, they are. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament belongs to the Jews. That's like saying that the niggers in Detroit invented the automobile because they happened to live in the city of industry. We used to know what industry that was, but today, who knows, the city of the crack industry maybe, or the city of the robbery industry. The ancient Israelites took the land of Canaan by the command of their God through direct military force. That is how God instructed them throughout the entire scripture. Go in and kick their asses. That's exactly what the Jew has never done. The ancient Israelites did not take Canaan after the manner of the Jews, which would be through infiltration, subversion, or subterfuge. The Jews would have taken Canaan with pencils, not with swords. Those are the traits of the Canaanites, as we see in the stories in the Old Testament of the Gibeonites or the Edomites, but not of the Israelites. Continuing with our source. The 24th verse of the same chapter 7 of Deuteronomy runs as follows. And he shall deliver their kinds into thine hand, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven.
There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou have destroyed them. And that's simply not reflective of the Jewish nature whatsoever. This prophecy, which the Holy Church relates to the sinful kings who ruled in the land of Canaan, the Jews interpret as having universal character. They therefore regard all their revolutions and conspiracies against the kings of recent time as holy enterprises, which they perform in fulfillment of the biblical prophecies, which they assume further as useful means to obtain domination of the world, which they likewise accept as commanded by God in the Holy Scripture. Well, so do the Catholics by attributing to the Jews the nature or the identity of the Old Testament Israelites, things that they never had. The Jews use the Old Testament as a cover to legitimize their claim to world domination. There's no doubt, but it's only a cover. To do so, they must lie about their identity and get away with it because they are truly not the people of the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 4, there is found an example of the same Jewish treachery where the devil speaks to Christ. The devil said to him, If you are a son of God, speak to the stone, that it would become bread. And Jesus said to him, It is written that not by bread alone shall man live. And bringing him up, up a mountain, as we read in the version in Matthew, and bringing him up, he showed him all of the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. Then the devil said to him, I will give you the authority over all this, and their honor, because to me it was delivered, and to whomever I wish I could give it. Therefore, if you would worship before me, it shall all be yours. And replying, Jesus said to him, It is written, The Lord your God you shall worship, and you shall serve him only. Of course, the devil, who was also ostensibly a Jew, did not actually have control of all the nations of the world. But he could maintain control of them if their true rulers acknowledged him. As it describes in Revelation chapter 13, the dragon gives its power to the beast. When men concede to the wicked for the love of money, the dragon comes to rule over all by inflating those men above their peers. If Christ worshipped the devil, the devil would have given him earthly rewards. But at the same time, Christ would have conceded his true kingship to the devil who sought to steal it. That is how the Jews succeed in subjugating Christians. By deceit concerning what they really are, they are able to trick Christians into surrendering to them their own power. Christ wouldn't do it. Christ would not acknowledge the power that the devil claimed to have over the kingdoms of the world. Christ would not acknowledge the authority which the devil claimed to have.
when our Christian leaders acknowledge Jewish claims of authority, whether it be scripture or anything else, the Jew will naturally rule over Christians. That's the example that the church failed to learn from Luke chapter 4. The fault of the Roman Catholics is to think that the devil is in heaven, while the devils are actually all around them. Our author continues, The constant distortion of the true meaning of the prophecies of the Bible through the Jews we find renewed in reading of verse 27 of chapter 7 of the prophecy of Daniel. And he quotes, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. While the Holy Church interprets this prophecy by accepting it as referring to the eternal rule of our Lord Jesus Christ, which it certainly doesn't because it talks about giving it to the people of the saints of the Most High, the Jews regard it as meaning that a flock is to be formed with a shepherd who naturally comes from the tribe of Israel, that their race shall attain eternal rulership in the world over the other peoples. And the truth is that the book of Daniel is a prophecy which reveals a plan of history through four world empires, and either group, the Catholics or the Jews, taking this one particular verse out of that context, can twist it to mean whatever is convenient for them. But understanding what Daniel prophesied concerning those four empires and the historical reality of their fulfillment, there is more than sufficient proof to determine that the true people of God are not Jews at all. In fact, they are Christian and German, or at least related to the Germans, related to and including the Germanic people. Our source continues. The prophecy of Isaiah 60, verses 10 through 12, relates, And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually, and they shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring unto thee the riches of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. This prophecy alluding to the spiritual kingdom of Christ and his church takes on for the Jews a completely altered meaning which crystallizes in clearly recognizable actions. And here is the true fault of allowing the Jews the identification of the Old Testament Israelites, which they do not merit. The writings of Isaiah do not contain the words Jew or Jews anywhere. Not one, not one instance of the word Jew or Jews is found in Isaiah. The prophet is addressing the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations who were being scattered abroad with blessings in the 8th century B.C. in connection with a messianic prophecy of a redeemer in the last verses of the chapter which preceded this one which is quoted. 
none of them were ever known as Jews. The name of the Jews was unknown to Homer, who wrote about Palestine from Egypt all the way up to Sidon. The name Jew was unknown to Herodotus, who wrote about the very battle in which King Josiah fell to Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo, and Herodotus called the armies of the king Syrians. The true Israelites were not Jews to the early Greeks. They were Phoenicians and Syrians. The identity of the Jews did not emerge until later, much later, after the remnant of the people of Jerusalem became mixed with Edomites and Canaanites. It was this mixture into which Christ and the apostles were born. Sort of like being a white guy born in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> You're in the minority. You're surrounded by niggers. However, Christ said of the Jews, who were not distributed abroad widely until after the fall of Jerusalem, that there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, in Luke chapter 21. So the dispersion in Isaiah, which had nothing to do with Jews, was for blessings, 800 years before the dispersion of the Jews, after the fall of Jerusalem, which had everything to do with curses. From there, from Luke 21, there is never any hope of a blessing for the Jews, as Christ also said that there would be no fruit from the fig tree forever. So who was a Christian to believe, Christ or the Jews? And why would the Catholics ever believe the Jews? They should not be denied Isaiah by arguing with the word of God, the Catholic Church denies the Jews these prophecies in Isaiah, not by correctly identifying the Jews, but by arguing with the word of God. But rather, the Jews should be denied Isaiah, simply because Isaiah is not talking about Jews, plain and simple. Our source continues. Jewish dictatorship was set up, as for example, in the terror in France in the year 1789, or in the Jewish communist dictatorship in lands which had fallen into the claws of the monster. Whoever did not serve the Jews or dared to rebel against their slavery has been destroyed. The Jews exist only as owners, for they gain power over the wealth of these nations. And they exist as owners in the same way that the devil asserted power in Luke chapter 4. Christ told the Jews that they were of their father the devil. And there are historical reasons for that. So no one, our author says, so no one could go on in this way to quote verses of the Old Testament that had been falsely interpreted by Jewish imperialism 
One must bear in mind that many of the prophets were murdered by the Jews only because they contradicted them and blamed their perversion. Now Christ told those Jews in Luke chapter 11 and John chapter 8 that they were, they were of the race of Cain, that their father was the first murderer, the murderer from the beginning, who had to be Cain. No true Israelite was of the race of Cain in the biblical genealogies. None. The Jews Christ spoke to were infiltrators. Historically, it can be proven through the writings of Josephus and Paul of Tarsus that they were Edomites. It can also be proven from John chapter 8. And our author says, However, the most dangerous of these false interpretations of the prophecies of the Bible was that in connection with the arrival of the Messiah as the Redeemer of the human race who would set up the rule of the true God in this world. Here it was that the Jews departed in the worst possible way from the true reality, by giving the most sublime promises in relation to the Messiah as a racial and imperialistic character. The Christian scriptures promise the utter destruction of the Jews at the return of Christ, which is even explicit in the epistles of Paul to the Thessalonians. So why would the supposedly Christian Catholics even entertain the claims of the Jews concerning a Messiah? Our author continues, Already in the times of our Lord Jesus Christ, this false interpretation was so general among them that the majority of Hebrews imagined they saw in the promised Messiah a king or warlord who, with the help of God, would conquer all nations of the earth through bloody wars, and in the end Israel would in fact rule the whole world. When, therefore, Jesus was faced with such demands and rejected all shedding of blood and revealed that his kingdom was not of this world, the Jewish imperialists felt that all their hopes and demands were being destroyed. They began seriously to fear that the teaching of Christ might, in the end, even convince the Hebrews, and they might recognize him as the promised Messiah. And, of course, the Christian scriptures predict this very thing of the returning Christ, when all Jews and their allies are destroyed. And the Catholic apologist here seems to totally ignore chapter 19 of the Revelation. When Jesus preached the equality of all men before God, the Jews thought, and they did so with good reason, that Christ and his teachings would render null and void their false views concerning Israel as a people chosen by God to rule the world. Well, we have news for you. The Old Testament clearly says that the children of Israel were chosen by God to rule the world. However, they're not Jews. Not any of them are Jews. Simultaneously, he would declare null and void the idea of a people which is superior through the will of God to the others. And of course, Christ would not declare that null and void, because Christ, being God incarnate, actually stated that he would elevate the children of Israel above all others. The Catholics don't believe the scripture, 
and neither do the Jews. But the Catholics believe certain things that the Jews don't, and the Jews misapply certain things that the Catholics don't believe. It's like two sets of Jews arguing with one another. And which is destined through the commandment of God to subjugate the remaining peoples and gain control of their wealth. Therefore, the leaders of Jewry in that time, priests, scholars, and Pharisees, etc., feared that Jesus threatened the glorious future that was predestined the people of Israel as future master of the world. For if all peoples are equal before God, as our Lord Jesus Christ preached, there was no reason upon earth to choose one as preferential in the future and to rule over mankind. And Christ taught no such thing. Rather, he taught the equality of all of his people before God. But he also taught that the inherent wicked nature of other people, whom he referred to as dogs, pigs, foxes, wolves, scorpions, serpents, and goats, could never change. And therefore, there was never any hope of salvation for them. The Catholic theology is bankrupt, and it is defenseless against the Jews because the Catholics not understanding scripture themselves have to start denying scripture to answer the Jews our author continues in order to defend the ambitious Jewish thesis Caiaphas the high priest of Israel alluded to the suitability that one man should die namely Jesus Christ, in order to save a people. <coughs> and John said that Caiaphas was right, but not in the way that Caiaphas expected. It was only Caiaphas's objective that the Sadducees save the people for themselves, that the Sadducees retain control of the nation. And our author continues, After the blackest, and most world-denying crime that was ever committed in the history of mankind, the murder of the Son of God by the Jews. The later stood stiff-necked upon their demands for power and attempted in a new holy book to compile their false interpretations and to justify these. So appeared the Talmud, which is damned by the Holy Church and which, in which, as the Jews assert, the most perfected interpretation of the Old Testament is contained through divine inspiration. Afterwards appeared the collection of the Jewish Kabbalah, which means prophecy. And this was explained, likewise, according to the Jews, through divine inspiration, the secret interpretation. In other words, the concealed and true interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. In the following, we will quote some passages from these secret books of Jewry. <clears throat> the Kabbalah and the Talmud. Those books reflect the true nature of the Jews, who were not Israelites at all. The Old Testament laws are absolutely contrary to the spirit within the Jew. If the Old Testament were really the book of the Jews, they would have needed no others after the time of Christ. So from this point, our commentator better characterizes the Jews, where he speaks about them out of their true books. And he says, you, Israelites, and he should have said Jews, are called men, 
while the peoples of the world do not deserve the name of men, but that of beasts. And that's a quote from the Talmud. The generation of a stranger is like the generation of beasts. Another quote from the Talmud. And our author says, in the previously quoted passages, the false interpreters of the Holy Scripture take a step of great weight, namely to deny the Christians and Gentiles, or in other words, all peoples of the earth, their human capacity by ranking them among the breed of beasts. And here, it's obvious the Jews have stolen the position assigned to the white race, while it is the Jews themselves who are devils. And our author says, To do justice to the importance of this criminal step, one must bring to mind that according to the divine revelation of the Old Testament, all animals and beasts have been created by God for the service of men, who eat their flesh, use their skins as clothing, kill them, and in general can do with them as they please. On the other hand, he compelled men to keep his commandments in relation to other men. And again, that's a universalist and incorrect approach. Contrarily, the law was only given to Israel, as it says in Psalm 147. Only Israel must be properly identified, and they were never Jews. He continues, According to the false interpretation of the Holy Scripture, which both the Christians as well as other Gentiles are to the Jews simple beasts and not human beings, therefore the Hebrews, or Jews, have automatically no duty to keep the commandments towards them, and feel themselves at the same time completely in their right to kill, fleece, and rob them of everything that they possess, like any kind of beast. Never upon earth has there existed, or does there exist today, such an irreconcilable and totalitarian striving of power as that of Jews. This far-reaching view that the other peoples are beasts explains in clear form the irreconcilable, cruel, and despicable ignoring of every human law, such as one can observe with the high Jewish personages of international communism. Now, the Jews are wrong where the Catholics are right, where the scripture says to the children of Israel that they should have one law for themselves and for the strangers among them. And yes, the scripture says that, mostly so that the children of Israel are not tempted by the bad conduct of the strangers. Contrary to the Jews, Paul said, Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of the faith, meaning the scattered children of Israel turning to Christ. The ancient Israelites never despised the Assyrians to whom the prophet Jonah preached. They never despised the Persians. And in the Bible, God calls Cyrus, the Persian king, a man of gold. They never despised others of the white Adamic race. However, the word beast is at times used as a pejorative for other races. And that is very clear in certain, in certain scriptures.
That doesn't mean that it's other races every time the word appears. Usually where the word beast appears, it's referring to four-legged beasts or animals that creep along the ground. But rather, the Jews have stolen scripture and abuse it in order to abuse everyone else, since they themselves are devils. And as Paul also said, they themselves are contrary to all men. And if the Roman Catholic Church had realized the nature of the Jew as the apostles described it from the beginning and treated them accordingly, we would never have had a Jewish problem in Europe. The Catholic Church gave in to the usurers, to the lust for money, to the kings, the greed of the kings in the Middle Ages. And when the kings like Charlemagne admitted the Jews into the empire, the Catholic Church, so far as I've ever seen, never offered opposition to it. Our author continues, Their disdain towards other peoples goes so far as to assert, What is a prostitute? Every woman who is not a Jewess. This explains the fact, as different writers of diverse nationalities have recently shown, that the Jews have everywhere been the most unscru unscrupulous traders in girls and the most zealous defenders of the disintegrating teachings of free love and race mixing, while in their own families they maintain strict discipline and morality. And yes, the Jews are huge purveyors of white Christian girls for sex slaves, and they are huge proponents of so-called free love and pornography. And in fact, after the Bolshevik Revolution, the idea of free love was mandated in the Soviet Union. But the Jews aren't necessarily so morally disciplined and strict in their own families. That's not true. Jewish slavery is something else. The Jews are among the world's most race-mixed people. The Indians in India and, and the surrounding area might have them beat, but only because they are also mixed with Jews. Jewish sex slavery is something else which the Roman Catholic Church has long known about, but never proactively opposes. Here we see church officials admit that intermixing is wrong, but now they practically advocate it. Our author continues. As far as the murderous instincts of the Jews are concerned, which they have displayed over the centuries, they see themselves encouraged by what they hold to be the divine inspiration of the Talmud and of the Kabbalah, but which according to the Holy Church is nothing more than a devilish interpretation. And of course the Church is right about that. Kill the best among the Gentiles. If God commanded them such, whereby... It is, a cruel, it is a question of a cruel and bloodthirsty people, as the sufferings and death of Christ, the tortures and bloodbaths of communist Russia, prove how 
can it still surprise us that wherever the Jew can, all those are murdered who oppose any form of his godless intrigues. This devilish hatred, this sadism, which the Jews have always shown towards other peoples, has its origin in the false interpretation of divine revelation, in the Kabbalah and in the Talmud. May the next example serve as an illustration. And he quotes from the Talmud once again. What does Har Sinai or Mount Sinai mean? It means the mountain from which the Sina, the hatred towards all peoples of the world, has radiated. And the author says in response, One must recall that upon Mount Sinai, God revealed to Moses the Ten Commandments. But the modern Jews are of the opinion, equally false and disgusting, that there the religion of hate was revealed, which they have preserved up to our days. That satanic hatred towards all other peoples, which found its most extreme manifestations in the tortures and bloodbaths that have been perpetrated by international communism. The true children of Israel were chastised by God for failing to separate from all other peoples, which is what they were told to do at Sinai. If the Jews actually believed they were Israelites, they too should do that same thing. Evidently, they don't do it, so they really weren't they really don't believe that they're the Old Testament Israelites, or they would all live in Palestine, in a land of their own, apart from everybody else. But rather, they only use scripture as a facade for their own legitimacy, when they are actually the very devils that the ancient Israelites were supposed to extinguish. Throughout history, only the white race thrives on its own. All others thrive only when feeding off whites. It is impossible for a race with the nature of the Jew to dwell alone. They can only exist as parasites. The Kabbalah, our author says, which is reserved for the high initiates of Jewry, and not the plebes, carried out the division between Jews and Gentiles, among whom Christians were included, to the most disgusting and extreme limits, while on the one side the Gentiles are denigrated to the category of simple beasts, the Jews on the other are elevated to the category of gods, by placing them equal to the Godhead himself. To such a degree had the Jews falsified the meaning of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament in general. And this is the book which Johann Reuschlin and John Dee promoted to Christians. The Jew, placing himself at the Godhead, proves that he is the devil which Paul of Tarsus described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he proves it rather consistently, because he attempts it from generation to generation. And our author says, The blasphemous passage, which is quoted in the following, is highly enlightening in this connection. God places himself for display upon earth in the likeness of the Jew. Judas, Jeva, or Jehovah are the same and unique being. The Hebrew is the living God, the God become flesh, the heavenly man, the Adam Kadmon.
The other men are earthly and of inferior race, and only exist to serve the Hebrew. They are little beasts. And this is a corruption of a sublime concept of scripture, which does not at all apply to the Jews who are mongrels. Jews, applying it to themselves, seek to supplant the Christian Messiah with themselves. Christians should instantly recognize this as a blasphemy and forever reject the Jews. The Jews have never been held accountable by Christians for what Jews believe. It is therefore natural that this mode of thought has led the Jews to the conclusion that everything that exists upon earth belongs to them, including the beasts among whom they include us, the rest of mankind, and also everything which belongs to these beasts. Speaking of the Jews and their persecution of men, Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The Jew is only acting according to his nature, and the sin is that Christians would ever accept the Jew, thereby acknowledging the Jew and giving the Jew the opportunity to rule over him. That is what would have happened to Christ if he acknowledged the devil in Luke chapter 4. But Christ did not acknowledge the authority of the devil. He simply reiterated the authority of God. The falsifiers of the Holy Scriptures attempted, both in the Talmud as in the Kabbalah, to strengthen the Jewish striving for power by giving these steps the feature of a divine dispensation. The following passages prove it. Quote, the All-Highest spoke thus to the Israelites, meaning the Jews, You have recognized me as sole ruler of the world, and therefore I will make you into the sole rulers of the world. And of course, this is not true. It's certainly not true to Jews. When Christians recognize Christ as the sole king, then Christians are blessed when the ancient Israelites recognized Yahweh as their king, then they were blessed. But God is the only ruler, the only legitimate ruler. Whenever the Hebrews settle, wherever the Hebrews settle, the next quote, they must become lords until they possess absolute rulership they must regard themselves as banished and captives. Even if they are successful in ruling peoples, they may not, until they rule all, cease to cry. What torture! What dignity! And of course, how could the Israelites, if they were indeed Jews, be a separate people if they're mixed into everybody else's nation, ruling over people. The Jewish interpretation of Scripture is in clear conflict with the basic premises of Scripture. Our author continues, This false divine revelation, which is found in the Talmud, is one of the 
theological principles of the politics of modern Jewry, and that is certain, which in fact believes it is following the will of God through the literal translation into deeds. As soon as the Christian and Gentile peoples in magnanimous manner opened their frontiers to the immigrant Jews, they could never have imagined that in comparison with the migrations of other peoples, they granted shelter to eternal conspirators who are always ready to work in the shadows and restlessly until they rule the naive people that kindly opened its gates to them. And that's one of the best assessments we've seen in the book. But the New Testament warned them, so they should have imagined it. But the Roman Catholic Church never understood it, and therefore never taught what they should have taught. It's a little too late by the time the plot against the church was published. And our author continues. And for the sake of brevity, we won't comment too much more. The Talmud remarks, however, that the Jews will not be able to rest until their rule is unrestricted. The Hebrews, or Jews, have grasped that democracy and capitalism which have allowed them to rule the peoples, have not obtained for them that unrestricted rulership commanded to them by God, of which the Talmud speaks. Therefore the Jews, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, invented a totalitarian system which guaranteed to them to take from the Christians and Gentiles all their wealth, all their freedoms, and in general all their human rights, in order to place them on the level of the beasts. The dictatorship of communist socialism of Marx allows the Jew to attain this tyranny, and therefore, since its introduction in Russia, they have worked ceaselessly to destroy the capitalist form of government, which admittedly they themselves had created, but which was incapable of allowing them to arrive at the desired goal. As the Talmud reveals, it does not satisfy the Jews to rule over some peoples, but they must control them all, and as long as they are not successful, they must cry out, what torture, what an indignity. This also explains the circumstance why the Jewish communist hunger for power is insatiable, and reveals how absurd it is to believe in an upright and peaceful coexistence, or in the possibility that communism will abandon its demand to conquer all the peoples of the earth. The Jews believe that God has commanded them to lay upon all peoples their absolute tyranny, and that this absolute tyranny can only be successful for them through the unrestrained socialist dictatorship of communism, as this tyranny must extend to all peoples. They do not rest until they have laid communist slavery upon all peoples of the earth. It is unavoidably necessary that the Christians and Gentiles should fully grasp this giant tragedy. The existence of an imperialistic and cruel totalitarianism, which is 
spurred on by a group of mystics, fanatics, and madmen, and which will perform all its crimes and all its perversions in the firm belief that they fulfill faithfully the commands of God, is an unhealthy reality. Their wickedness extends to such a degree that they hold it to be morally permissible to allow denial of God and for communist materialism to triumph in the whole world, while they, the pious and faithful, are successful in destroying hated Christianity and the other, quote-unquote, false religions for the purpose of permitting the present religion of Israel to rule on the ruins of all others who recognize the right of the Jews to control the world and recognize through divine right their character as the chosen race to rule over mankind in the coming times. On the other hand, the Talmud says that it gives the Jews the truthful version of the biblical promises about the Messiah. The Messiah will give the Hebrews rulership over the world, and to them all peoples will be subject. And this excellent assessment of the intents of the Jew by these Roman Catholic clerics is the essence of the Protocols of Zion, or I should say, the Protocols of Satan. But, on the other hand, so long as Christians accept the Jewish claims that they are the Israelites of the Old Testament, something which is clearly proven wrong in history. Christians are defenseless against all these other claims of the Jews. Not understanding the true history of Israel and Judah, the Catholic Church may be able to identify Jewish treachery, but it cannot defend against it because it has the apparent support of the Bible. So the Catholics end up fighting with God instead of with the Jews. That is crazy, but that is exactly what they're doing. The truth about the Jews is the only way to understand what Christ had meant when he said that the truth shall set you free, and the church doesn't have it. Continuing with our writer. One could quote passages from the different parts of the Talmud and the Jewish Kabbalah, which are equally as informative as these, which allow us to understand the extent and importance of the present religion of the Jews and the danger which it signifies for Christianity and the rest of mankind. The deeper one penetrates into this material, all the clearer will one recognize the abyss that is opened between the original and true religion which was revealed by God to the Hebrews through Abraham, Moses, and the prophets, and the false religion which these Jews who crucified our Lord Jesus Christ have worked out as well as their descendants on grounds of the consciously false interpretation of the Holy Bible. Above all, with the appearance of the Talmud, of Jerusalem and Babylon, and of the later completion of the Kabbalistic books, the Sefer HaZohar, the Sefer Yetzirah, holy books, well, they're not holy, which are the foundations for the modern religion of the Jews. If an abyss exists between the religion of Abraham and Moses and of modern Jewry, and we would say that the abyss has not been adequately explained here, 
then the same is unfathomable between Christianity and modern Jewry. One could say of the later that it is the contrast and the denial even of the Christian religion, against which it desires hatred and urges its destruction in the holy books and in its secret rites. The centuries-long struggle, I don't know why the Catholic cleric keeps on calling the Talmud and the Kabbalah and the Zohar and the Yetzirah holy books, <coughs> when actually they are the actual writings of the devil. They're not holy at all. The centuries-long struggle of the Holy Church against the Jewish religion and its rites had not, as is falsely said, the religious intolerance of Catholicism as the cause, but the enormous infamy of the Jewish religion, which represents a deadly threat for Christianity. This compelled the Church, which at first was so tolerant, to adopt a positive attitude for defense of the truth of Christianity and of the entire human race. Erroneous and deceitful is the, consequently the view of some clergy who call themselves Christians, but work together with the Jews in a thoroughly suspicious way, asserting that it is not admissible to fight against Jewry, for the true Jews, the believing Jews, have a religion related and similar to Christianity which a Catholic Church, being an alleged Christian, a Catholic cleric should never believe, because Christ said, No one gets to the Father except through me. No Christian should under any circumstances accept the person of any Jew, according to the Second Epistle of John. Our author concludes, What the Jews strive for in reality, when they put before Catholics this thesis of unlawfulness of struggle against the criminal Jewish sect, is the obtaining of a new permit for freebooting, which allows them, without exposing themselves to direct counterattacks, to continue in their Freemasonic or Communist revolutionary movements until they are successful in the destruction of Christianity and the enslavement of mankind. The Hebrews and their accomplices within Christianity wish to secure in a comfortable manner the victory of the Jewish hunger for power. For if the Christians abandon attacking and conquering the head of the whole conspiracy by restricting themselves only to attacking the Freemasonic, anarchistic, communist, or any other branch, the head, meaning the Jews, which is free of attacks, preserves its whole power while its Freemasonic and Communist tentacles devote themselves with all their mercies, all their branches, I'm sorry, in a merciless manner, as they have done previously to the attack upon the religious, political, and social institutions of Christianity over the whole world. And all of this is well and good. And the Catholic writer did a very good job of summarizing the Jewish threat to the world today, which we have seen unfold to an even greater extent in the years since this book was published. This is indeed the essence of the Protocols of Zion, and we will probably refer back to this and other portions of this series as we present the Protocols of Zion. 
to show that we have here a contiguous narrative which illustrates the plan of Jewry for conquest and world domination, which is what the Protocols of Zeon clearly represent. However, the biggest trouble with the Roman Catholics, the biggest trouble with the David Duke crowd, the Jared Taylor conservatives, the alt-right, all of these clowns that without criticism accept the Jewish narrative concerning the Old Testament is this. When the average Christian and most white people are still nominal Christians to one extent or another, when the average Christian sees in the Old Testament the words to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, they will never curse the Jews if they hold the mistaken notion that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament. And they will do everything they can to help the Jews because out of their own greed, they want to procure a portion of the blessings of God. The only way to defuse Jewish power in the world is to do what Christ did on the mount before the devil. To deny his power by not acknowledging him. By not acknowledging the Jew. By not acknowledging his claims to authority. And the honest historical truth is that the Jews are not the people of the Old Testament any more than those English-speaking niggers in Cleveland are Anglo-Saxons because they speak English. If only the theologians of the Roman Catholic Church had sought to understand the simple words of Jesus of Nazareth, where in John chapter 10 he is recorded as having told the Jews, But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Or in Revelation 2.9, where the risen Christ said, I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In other words, they're not Judeans. They're not Judah. They are the synagogue of Satan. They're not the church of God or the people of God. They're the people of Satan. Here the Catholic clerics use that title, synagogue of Satan, to describe the Jews, but still believe that they are the Old Testament sheep. How did they miss the first half of the verse? something which Christ had denied them. The answer to solving the dilemma is in Scripture, but the Catholics never sought it. So they are defenseless in protecting Christendom from the Jews, and now the church itself is practically destroyed. Now we have a so-called Pope who's denying Christ, telling Christians they're not no good, and kissing the asses of Muslims. The Jewish treachery outlined here to the best of my knowledge, was never even acknowledged by the Church until relatively recently. And now, with the success of Vatican II and a new generation of cardinals, the Church allies itself with the Jews once again. The plot against the Church is a history of a Roman Catholic failure to withstand the devil.
Here we will conclude our presentation of the relevant portions of the plot against the church. When we return to the series for a short time, hopefully for only one program, we will discuss the Jewish and Kabbalist presence in England before returning to present the Protocols of Satan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel. And good night.